You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. Last Saturday, eight days ago, um, our new student leader, uh, Chandler McKay, married his wife, Grace, right here in this room. And some of us were there to celebrate. Uh, Chandler, are you in the service? You and Grace? It was, it was an incredible event. The day before that, Friday before the Saturday, I did a wedding ceremony right here for a 70-year-old man and a 66-year-old woman, a second marriage for both of them, and God in His grace had brought them uh, together. And I've got five weddings in the next three months. Um, in spite of all the difficulties with marriage, we keep doing it, don't we? Weddings are wonderful because marriage is wonderful and it really shouldn't surprise us because God said it's not good for a man to be alone. And it just seems like we agree with that. But there are, there, there are challenges, aren't there? Um, President Donald Trump has been married three times. He once said, business is simple, marriage is complicated. I suspect his wife's agree with that. Socrates said, my advice to you is to get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be happy. If not, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) And I have a a friend who puts it this way. He said, marriage begins as an ideal, and then it becomes an ordeal, and soon people are looking for a new deal. So these little sayings that that come about. Some of you old-timers will remember the name Mickey Rooney. He was in show business for 90 years. He died in his 90s um, just a few years ago. A television personality. He started in, in 300 movies. Mickey Rooney was married eight times. His last wedding, his last marriage lasted 25 years. And someone came to him and said, uh, Mickey, you've had so many marriages. What made this one different? And he was very careful to credit the fact that he had become a Christian before his last marriage. And he said, that explains it. I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ now. I, I know Christ. And yet you don't have to talk to too many college students and high school students before you hear them say something like this. My parents had such a bad experience in marriage. There's no way I'm going into that. So it won't surprise many people here that the majority of people who get married these days are living together. But it may surprise you that researchers, statisticians across the board say the odds of, not, of it not working go sky high if you live together before you get married. So marriage is both wonderful and it's incredibly challenging. It's one of the core institutions of our, of our society. And the research is telling us that the stability of a marriage results in lots of good things like happiness in our life. And yet people are really confused inside the church and outside the church. Just what is, what is marriage supposed to be and how is it supposed to work? And when Christians are confused, what do we do? We go to the Bible. So I ask you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in a series. We're walking verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter. We're calling it Living Excellent Lives. And um, whether you're using a, a mobile device, your phone, or a, a, a Bible with covers like this, while you're looking for that, husbands, I think you're going to find what Peter says really helpful in knowing how to behave as a husband in a marriage. And wives, I think you're going to find this really useful 
and I suspect I'm going to hear from some of you about this message. Uh, and all of us, it's going to help us to understand what does it mean to be a godly husband? What does it mean to be a godly wife? And if you're single, they tell us that about 90% of young singles will eventually get married. What we're going to read will help you determine the kind of potential marriage partner that you have. And if God has called you to not be married, at least you'll understand what God has called people to do in marriage. And we're all going to get a glimpse of the gospel. Because if I, as I have studied this once again over the last three weeks, here's one of my conclusions. That a Christian marriage is one of the clearest examples or models of what the gospel is like. We talk a lot about the gospel here. And I'm convinced that Christian marriage is, is, is an incredible representation of that. Eugene Peterson in one of his books said, The Holy Spirit forms the church to be a colony of heaven in a country of death. And I want to rephrase that. God forms a Christian marriage to reflect who he is and what he is like and what he does. And we really do get a a glimpse of what Christians call the gospel. God's love for us is depicted so clearly uh, in marriage. I'm convinced the greatest opportunity we have to point people to Jesus is if we have marriages that are Christian marriages, godly marriages. And you don't have to be married to point people to Jesus. I mean, Paul was never married. And you don't have to be happily married to be able to point people to Jesus. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, had a marriage that was a disaster from day one. It never became William Carey, the first American missionary. Um, same, same story. His wife was, was, had, had mental illness and became increasingly uh, worse. You don't have to be happily married to point people to Jesus. You don't have to be married. And God's purpose for us as Christians, in part, is to represent him. And it won't change your marriage if you become a Christian or if you are a Christian. It it will change you. Um, I love what Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, said one day. She said, my job is not to change Billy. My job is to love him. It's God's job to change him. You're, only res- you're not responsible for your spouse. You're responsible for you and what you can do. And so as we read this, uh, I'm very aware of the cultural setting that we're in as I read this. So we'll talk about that a moment. But would you stand in honor of God and his word? And let me read this with us. This is not a description of a perfect marriage because there are no perfect marriages. There are no perfect people. But it's a description of a godly marriage. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Let your adorning be the inner person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, it says, according to knowledge. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
This is God's word. You may be seated. So I realize if you're fairly new here um, and in touch with our culture, this really sounds strange. At best, it sounds old-fashioned and quaint, and at worst, it probably sounds oppressive and, and and dangerous. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through this passage, all seven verses, and I want to try to persuade you as best I can that God's Word is not only wise and good, but it is sane in an insane culture. And I realize I'm not going to be able to do that in one sermon, probably not in one conversation. So here's what I want to invite you to do. If something we read or something that I say raises questions, concerns, comments in your mind, feel free to email me. Here's my email right here. I'm not going to try to answer the questions in the sermon, but uh, this evening and tomorrow, I'll send, you a, I'll send you a biblical perspective back to your question, and I'll take the questions that are, that, that are emailed to me, make them anonymous, and we'll put them on our website and with, with my response so that we're all kind of growing in our understanding, at least of what God's Word says here. What He does, so feel free to email me. What he does is he, he breaks this down into two sections. He gives instructions to wives, that's in the first six verses, and there are two instructions and a motivation. And then he gives instructions to husbands in verse 7, and there are two instructions and, and there's a motivation. So let's begin with the wives. Here's the first instruction. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And that raises the million-dollar question, what does that mean? I do premarital counseling uh, quite a bit these days for some reason, and this is where I get the pushback. This is the one that raises the most questions and takes conversation in all kinds of ways. And one of the things I can do perhaps that would be helpful to you is to recommend a book. It is the most thorough book I know on, on this. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, it's edited by uh, Wayne Grudem and, and John Piper, lots of different writers. It's 500 pages. You can order it on Amazon. It's, it's very thorough. But because there's so much confusion and because this has been so abused and so misunderstood, I want to give you nine things it doesn't mean. I don't want this to die the death of a thousand qualifications, but I think it'd be helpful to know nine things right from the text that submission in marriage does not mean. Number one. It does not mean all of you women submit to men because he says your own husband. So he's talking about marriage and there's something unique about marriage where it's fitting for husbands and husbands and wives to complement one another, to, to have roles and responsibilities that really fit together. Here's the second thing. It doesn't mean you agree with everything your husband says. It is possible to obey this without thinking like your husband thinks, because that's the situation he describes here. Here's a Christian woman, and she's married to a guy who is not a Christian. And in that culture, wives were expected to follow the religion of their husbands, but that's not the case here. So she's a Christian. He's not. He doesn't understand her faith. It's a spiritual spiritual mismatch. They're not spiritually compatible. Maybe he mocks her faith. It's a tough marriage. It's a really, it's a challenge. And what Peter says is not leave him or Peter says this, find a way to honor his leadership as much as you can in order that he might see the beauty of Jesus in you. 
Here's a third thing it does not mean. It does not mean women leave their minds at the altar. Submission does not imply that a woman is less intelligent or less competent. In fact, Peter seems to imply she has more spiritual insight because she's come to Christ and he hasn't. So she's probably smarter than, than he is. She's an independent person. She's worth listening to. And a man would have to be a fool not to hear his wife and listen to her. Number four, it doesn't mean he gets the last word. doesn't mean he's right. My wife, you are wrong. Spiritual leadership does not mean a husband's a dictator. Take my, wife, my, my, my marriage, for example. My wife is so much more competent in so many ways more than, than I am. Um, and so I find myself yielding to her. And yet I'm the spiritual leader in our home. When we were married, someone told us, they said, if a husband and a wife come up to a situation and they both disagree and they can't agree, then the husband makes that final decision. Maybe so. I just have to tell you, that's very seldom worked in my marriage. <laughs> because we work together to come up with a, a, a solution we, we both want to, to make happen. It just it hasn't been that way. And, my, and yet... She honors me as the spiritual leader in the family. Number five, it does not mean that you, try to, that you don't try to influence or change your husband. That's the whole point. She wants him to become a Christian. She's trying to influence him toward Christ. So Peter implies, don't nag him. I mean, does nagging work with you? Don't try to nag him or manipulate him into, into becoming a Christian. And don't stop speaking to him. You can't become a Christian without hearing the words of the gospel, but there comes a time when you have to pull back, he says, and let your life be the message. The way you, you, the way you relate to him, it'll speak louder than, than your words. So if you're a wife, ask yourself, if my husband were not a Christian, would my words and my behavior help lead him to Christ? And husbands, ask yourself this question. If my wife were not a Christian, would my life give her the desire to follow Jesus? And if you're not married, then ask if my friends, my co-workers are not believers, is there anything about me that would attract them to Jesus? Number six, it does not mean putting a husband's will before the will of Christ as if the husband is some kind of absolute authority. What does, a non, what does a Christian wife do with a non-Christian husband who says, leave your faith, become like me. Leave Christianity, become like me. What does she say? Well, maybe she says something like this. I love you, honey. I want to honor you. I want to follow you. But Jesus is my Lord, and I cannot do that. So we got a couple of options here. You can either kill me in that culture or leave me or we can figure out some way to work together in our marriage. What if, a, what if a dad tells a son to steal something and that son's a Christian and the dad's not? What, is it, what does a son do? Well, a son might say something like this, Dad, I love you and you're my dad, but I cannot do that because Jesus says it's not right. See, those are appropriate words to say in any 
area where there is an authority. In fact, he uses the word likewise. He begins this likewise, which takes us back to verse 13 in chapter 2. Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 18, servants, we'd say employees. Be subject to your masters or your employees. Here's the reality. There are all kinds of people in government who are not good people. And so we say, well, I don't have to submit to them. I don't, I, no, the Bible says for the Lord's sake. To honor the Lord, you submit to them when, where you can if it's not disobeying Christ. We have all kinds of employers who are not good people. But a Christian employee submits to them in every way he can, honoring them to honor Christ. And so the very next thing he says is, no wives. You not be, may not be married to a, a good man. It may be a very difficult marriage. But in every way you can, try to win him gently and respectfully, honoring him. But you cannot put your submission to him above your loyalty to Christ. Verse uh, number seven. It does not mean she gets all of her spiritual strength from her husband because he has none to give. He's not a Christian. Number eight. It does not mean being timid or living in fear. Did you catch verse six where he talks about a woman is fearless? Submission, says Peter, is a, is a sign of security. A Christian woman doesn't put her hope in her husband. She doesn't put her hope in maybe getting married if she's single. She doesn't put her hope in him becoming a Christian if he's not a Christian. Her hope is in God. She knows her Bible. She knows the promises of God. And she knows there is a sovereign God full of love and power who rules and does whatever he wants on earth. And her hope is in him, not her husband, which enables her to live more fearlessly, gives her strength, and he will be with her and help her. Number nine, submission does not mean you remain in a situation of domestic violence or abuse. And I just want to say, if that's the situation with anyone here, don't let anyone use a Bible to justify that. Get out, get some help. And if we can help here at the orchard, we'd, we'd love to do that. But it won't fly to say, the Bible says you say in a situation of domestic violence. Look at that word likewise once again. What comes just before likewise in chapter 2? Well, he talks about Jesus going to the cross, what we've been singing about, where Jesus submitted himself to the Father. In fact, the driving motive in the life of Jesus was not my will, but your will be done. So let me raise this question. Did that demean Jesus? Does that mean Jesus was not equal to the Father in grace and power and attributes? No, it doesn't mean that at all. So if I understand what Peter's saying, I think he's saying submission does not demean a wife or mean that she's less competent or not an equal. And maybe some wife says, well, if my husband would be the kind of husband he should be, I'll be the kind of wife that I should be. But that's Peter's point. This guy is not the kind of husband that he should be. And Peter says to the wife, as much as you can, submit to his leadership, honor him as your husband, up to the point of disobeying Jesus. Um, don't leave him. Stay with him there because he may become a Christian through the influence of your wife, of his wife. So those are all the things it doesn't mean. What does it mean? It means let him lead. Don't compete with him for the leadership. You see, a husband can only be a leader if a wife allows him to be 
the leader. You can't coerce this. You can't, a husband can't demand submission from his wife. It's a, it's a willing, it's a cooperative spirit that honors him as, a, as, a, as a, the leader, even if she disagrees with him. And this shouldn't be surprising to anyone here if you've ever taken ballroom dancing. Um, when my two daughters, uh, four kids, the two oldest are, are, are girls, when both of them were married, I danced with my daughters. And after about three seconds, they said, Dad, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> you're such a bad dancer. Uh, but in ballroom dancing, someone's got to lead and someone's got to follow. And usually it's the man who leads. And if it's going to work, it, it, it has to work. And marriage is a dance. It's, it's kind of back and forth. And a wife has to be willing to let that happen. You say, well, what does this look like in daily life? Peter does not tell us. I think he's saying, you work it out in your own marriage. In your particular situation, you work out what this means. But he does tell us it's a kind of an attitude. It's a disposition. It's, it's a demeanor. Um, he says, work out the details, but it's an attitude. And anybody who has ever had to submit to anybody, a, a police officer, a, a teacher, a parent, knows there's two ways you can submit. You can say, I'll do what you ask, but I don't like it. Or you can say, I'll do what you ask, and I want to honor you. Big difference. So he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And then he says, let me look at verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Now, he's he's not saying don't put on clothing, right? So he's not saying don't put on jewelry. Um, Ruthie's dad used to say to Ruthie's mom when we were visiting them, he would, he would look and say, Juanita, it never hurts to put a fresh coat of paint on the old barn door. I would not recommend saying that. But. Read the Song of Solomon. The woman there is, is arrayed in beautiful garments. Uh, she, she's actually taking care of herself. This is not Peter saying, let yourself go. The temple in the Old Testament was covered with gold, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. What he's saying is this, care more about the inside than the outside, ladies. That ought to be so freeing to you because women are under such pressure in our culture to be pretty, to look young, and there's no model. I mean, most of us do not stand in front of a mirror and go, wow. Most of us stand in front of a mirror and go, good night. And, and there, there's no one model for women to follow. Um, there's a suburban soccer mom, lifetime fitness kind of pretty woman. There's the hipster vintage store kind of pretty. There's the CrossFit vegan Whole Foods kind of pretty. And there's the professional career woman, you know, the accomplished career woman. And no matter which of these is your thing or, or, or another, there's some adornment that goes with it. You always have to keep chasing after that because the advertisers keep changing the target. And Peter just says, it's fine. It's good to care about the outside. But care more about virtue, godliness, cultivating what he calls the inner person of the heart. Ladies, you're a person. You are not an object to be gawked at, to be objectified. You are, you're not a response machine to your husband. You're a person. 
And that is reflected in who you really are on the inside. How many beautiful women do you know who are just not very deep? By the contrast, how many women have you met who may not be wearing the most up-to-date fashion, but you get to know them and there is a, there is a beauty in their character, their words, their demeanor. They just exude confidence and strength and joy. It's who you want to be, says Peter. And he talks about being, having a quiet and gentle spirit, and that rubs a lot of women wrong because they say, that's not me. Well, these qualities are characteristic of Jesus, according to Matthew 11. He's, he's humble of heart. He's gentle in spirit. And if you don't like the word quiet, then substitute the word serene. There's a calmness deep inside out of which you, you live, and you cultivate that, that, that calmness. And then in verse 5, it gives them this motivation. Look at it. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord near his, her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He says, look for role models, ladies. Look Back then, today, look for people who can just help you understand. Here's how a godly woman carries herself. Here's how... Here's how a godly woman deals with life. And learn from them. Don't do away with tradition. Someone says your grandma was outdated the way she handled things. If your grandma was a godly woman, you can learn from her. How godly women deal with situations. Don't throw out the heritage of the women of the past. And what's real interesting here is he talks about Sarah and Abraham's marriage, which was really Weird, um, full of complexities. Do you know when Sarah called Abraham Lord? She didn't call him that to his face. I don't recommend any women try that, or guys at home. She didn't say Lord to her husband. She didn't say it to other people. She said it to herself one day in the quiet of her own heart. She called her husband my Lord, which means she doesn't look down on him and roll her eyes when he does something she thinks is foolish. She honors him in her heart. So here, I can just sum it up. Wives, nobody can play a greater role in enabling your husband to be the man of God he is called to be like you. Nobody. And yet you're not responsible for him. Think of what Ruth said about Billy. It's God's job to change him. It's my job to love him. Then he moves to husbands, verse 7. Likewise, husbands... In the same way that wives mimic Jesus, who submitted to the Father, likewise, husbands, same way Jesus is your model, live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He just says, be a student of your wife. Nobody should know your wife as well as you do. Because she is not like any other woman that God ever created. She is totally unique. She has her own dreams and desires and, and, and fears. Know them. What makes her happy? Pursue that. What, what does she fear? Avoid that. Where is she vulnerable? Let that shape the way that you respond to her. God has called you to listen to her heart until you know her better than anyone. And it's a lifelong calling. Um. My wife is not the woman I married, and I'm not the guy that she married. 
We're both different. It's a lifelong thing to get to know another person. What honors your wife? What causes her to flourish? What causes her to feel valued? It's the idea of being a student of your wife. What vulnerabilities do you need to be careful to, to, to walk around? She chose to give herself to you in a moment of temporary insanity. Honor her. And this weaker vessel, what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of two things. It could be sociological or it could be biological. It could be he's saying in this culture where he's writing, in this culture, women don't have many rights. They're, they're not valued. Their voices are not heard. And so she's weaker in the sense of the place that she holds in society. Or, and I think this is what is in his mind, it could be biological. I want to ask you the same question I asked the first service this morning. Is there any sport in the Olympics where men and women compete against one another? Why? I couldn't think of one. There may be one, but why? Well, it's because compared to women, men have 90% greater body strength, 65% greater lower body strength. Men have a 45% higher vertical leap. They're 20% faster. And someone in this room is saying, Sam, have you seen Captain Marvel? (laughs) It's a movie. It's a comic book. It's fiction. So what the men have 11 times more testosterone than than women, which is the hormone that produces risk-taking and aggressiveness. When the Bible says a woman is the weaker vessel, it is not some backhanded insult uh, to women. It's just stating a, a biological fact. And what the Bible is telling husbands is you are physically stronger than your wife, and you can use that strength in one of two ways. You can dominate and intimidate and bully and threaten her. It's what sinful men do. Or you can use your strength to honor her and love her. That's the second thing he says. Know your wife. Use your strength to honor her. Men, you're stronger. What are you going to do with your strength? We live in a culture where masculinity and manhood is a wreck. On the one hand, you've got people who use, men who use their strength for violence to, uh, to hurt people. On the other hand, you have men, women, men who at work are aggressive and go-getters, and at home they're checked out, not out to lunch. Be the kind of man, says Peter, who uses your strength for good, to honor women, to help others to flourish, to push back evil, to be a, a blessing. That's what it means to be a godly man, and we want a church full of this kind of man. And it's really sad. I just want to go on a little rant here. It's really sad how our culture has dismissed strength. Strength is bad. Strength leads, leads to, to violence and oppression. So you have to neuter it. You see it in the way little boys are raised like little girls. Neuter their strength. Train the masculinity out of them. And that's just not some preacher saying that. This is the result of dozens of studies by uh, researchers and sociologists and doctors like Christina Hoff Summers, who is a feminist and wrote a best-selling book, The War Against Boys, How Misguided Feminism is Harming Our Young Men. She just says, if I can sum the book up, we're, we're raising little boys wrongly. We're raising them like the little girls and training out of them the masculinity. Our culture says strength is bad. The Bible says, no, strength is good if it's directed in the right way. There are two ways you can direct strength. You can use strength 
to exploit vulnerability. Think of a lion stalking a gazelle that's been separated from the, from, from the herd. Or you can use strength to cover and protect vulnerability. Think of soldiers fighting ISIS, helping um, uh, civilians get to safety and freedom. Sinful men use their strength to exploit vulnerability. Godly men use their strength to protect, to honor, to cover, use it in merciful ways. And then he gives just this motivation, he says, so that your prayers are, are not hindered. What does that mean? When Ruthie and I are watching TV and we want to talk to each other, um, we've got this little button on the remote that says mute. <laughs> we just mute the TV, have a conversation, go back to watching whatever it is uh, that is on. Picture God in heaven watching a man mistreat the people in his family, not honor them, and God pushes the mute button. In here, prayers. Or let me give you another illustration. This one's not the best one, but it's the best I can come up with. There's a pipe between you and God, and when we are not uh, honoring the people in our family, it's like this pipe gets full of junk, debris, and rocks, and the prayers don't get through. See, folks, we have this false spirituality at this time, which says you can have a relationship with God without it affecting the relationship you have with other people. That's just not right. So what he says is the way you treat your wife says a lot about your relationship with God himself. Your disposition toward your wife is an ind indicative of your disposition uh, toward God. So anybody, any man here feel cold? Any man here just by, kind of feel dead in your spirit? Check out what's going on at home. Now, I, I want to finish up. I have tried my best in this time to persuade you that what God's Word says is not only wise and good, it's sane. It's not about holding on to some outdated social uh, dynamic of families. It's, it's not about keeping women in their place. It's about men and women complimenting one another, serving one another. And I just want to paint a picture for you at the end. Consider, the, uh, consider this, how sane this is. Consider a world where the differences between men and women are embraced and celebrated. Consider the sanity of a world where women are judged by the content of their character and not by how hot they are. Consider the sanity of a world where little girls grow up confident in who they are on the inside rather than what they combine to make them look beautiful. And little boys grow up knowing God has made them strong and made them boys and they're to use that strength to protect and cover and help and serve. Consider the sanity of a world where, women, where men treat women with honor rather than objectifying them or showing them disdain. Consider the sanity of a world where a husband and wife work together for a common good in their marriage. And then consider the insanity of the world we live in now. Divorce at almost an all-time high. More and more people avoiding marriage. 40% of kids born out of wedlock. And I would just submit to you, what, we've, what we're doing is not working. For some of you, your marriage is not healthy. You're like two people living in the same house like roommates. 
but there's nothing going on there. Don't brush away God's word just because we think we have a better way. I don't think we do. And here's the beauty of a passage like this. It just shows us our need for Jesus. It drives me to my knees because there's no one who knows what a reprobate I am like my wife. There is something about marriage that holds a mirror up to you and shows you just what you're like on the inside, and it's so it's not what you think. It exposes your weaknesses, it exposes your sin, your selfishness, your vulnerability, and it drives us to our knees to the Lord for help. That's what it's meant to do. Marriage was given by God to help people become godly, and a part of that is shaving off the rough edges as we relate to one another. It's painful, and it's good. It's wise it's sane. It's a gift from God. And we need Jesus to make it work.